Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is videocast 109 and podcast episode 99 for the week ending November 18th, 2021. Uh, very uh, interesting day today to, to say the least with uh, Alibaba earnings and we're going to spend a lot of time on that. Uh, the bad news is the stock was down. Uh, the good news is our viewership will be up because if you know anything about NASCAR racing, no one comes to watch the winner. They come to see the crashes. Uh, but I think this is going to be a short-lived crash and we'll walk through some of the data and, um, and lay out uh, how we're thinking about it moving forward. So starting with uh, Media Spot on Reuters last Friday, uh, thanks to Herb Lash for including me in his Reuters article. Uh, this was, let's see... Too many hedge funds expected the Fed and other central banks to quickly turn hawkish as inflation rises and have been forced to cover their short position in bonds, said Tom Hayes. Fund managers were the least overweight bonds that they've ever been in history of the data going back two decades. The volatility you saw on and off in the last week or so was attributable to wrong-footedness in the bond market by a lot of hedge funds. So um, we covered a little bit of that in recent weeks. So moving right along... Uh, this is a quote from Baron Rothschild, buy when there's blood in the streets, even if it's your own. <laughs> so we'll talk about that today. Uh, we did add a little bit to Alibaba on the flush this morning. And then uh, Peter Lynch, I've, as I've always said, the key organ here isn't the brain, it's the stomach. When things start to decline, there are bad headlines in the papers and on television. Will you have the stomach for the market volatility and the broad-based pessimism that tends to come with it? And that applies on a uh, market-wide basis and on a stock basis. Uh, and then Robert Arnott, uh, in investing what is comfortable is rarely, rarely profitable. Uh, and now we're going to get down to our... Ask me anything questions of the week. We've got, this is a record week for questions, so I'm going to try to go through them quickly. Uh, Matt Mitchell asks, uh, hi, Tom, do you have any concern over the fact that Baba's financials aren't truly audited, at least in an American sense? Agreed that Baba is undervalued on paper, but a lot of the, that undervalued derivation comes from the reported growth rate in their revenue and earnings numbers. Despite being arguably underreported, accounting scandals seem common in China, luck in coffee. Understand that BABA is audited by PwC, but the auditors are based in China and there's no PCAOB-like organization to validate that these audits are done correctly. I'm curious how you weigh the sketchiness risk of China or lack, uh, for lack of a better term, against the other valuation opportunity. Uh, you know, I think at these levels, uh, uh, an awful lot of risk is priced in. I do think that if BABA turned out to be a, an accounting fraud, um, you know, the capital markets would be closed to China forever. So that's a, um, a possibility, uh, which is why we covered last week with that fund that put 80% of their portfolio into Alibaba. Um, I think they're going to be right, and I think they're going to make a lot of money, but, but you can't account for everything. It's, it's what you don't know that you don't know. So, you know, super-duper high-conviction trade in a hedge fund is 10 15 20%. Uh, max, you know, you get over that level, then you're just, you know, not taking into account the black swan. And, uh, and the question you're asking is, uh, is certainly a possibility. I, I would put it ascribe less than, you know, one and a half percent possibility for a company like Alibaba. For like many of the smaller mid cap companies in China, I'd probably ascribe maybe, you know, a 30, a, you know, 30 percent probability uh, on a discrete basis, company by company. I mean, it could be 
as high as that much on, on some of the smaller companies. But when you're looking at a JD, a Tencent, an Alibaba, if any of those are going to turn out to be fraudulent, they really risk closing the capital markets to that country forever. And uh, um, so, yeah, you can never be certain. But the other thing is the U.S. is cracking down that that there's a countdown clock uh, by 2024. The PCAOB uh, will have to their their auditors will have to be screened by the PCAOB. So uh, Alibaba said as much as they're ready to comply with whatever regulations to stay listed. Uh, we covered that in recent weeks. So. Uh, yeah, could it be another Luckin? But Luckin is like the, the shining example, and that was, you know, a, a coffee operator. I mean, um, it's certainly a possibility, but it's a low probability, and you just have to manage that risk by how you size it in the portfolio. Um, Greg Stewart asks, uh, Novartis hasn't come up much in recent video casts. Seems like a good price right now. Would you think of it as a good place for new money? Yes, I would. I think that um, volatility is going to pick up in 2022 and probably in the first quarter, and defensives will come back into favor again. Defensives are utilities, staples, and uh, big pharma. Uh, and I think that the regulatory overhang of the pricing controls, the democratic plan, uh, is pretty well priced into most of the drug stocks. They, they all look the same. If you look at Amgen, uh, Biomarin, uh, if you look at um, uh, Novartis, they, they, they all look exactly the same. So uh, I, I think the worst case is priced in. And if we don't get the spending plan, you saw Manchin come out today and say he wants the uh, CBO score and uh, everything else before he approves it. I mean, it may be, a, may be a wash, particularly with the inflation narrative being so aggressive right now. Um, it's it's not a foregone conclusion that they'll jam through another 1.7 trillion, which would be uh, a failure of that would be disinflationary and it would also be positive for the drug stock. So, uh, yeah, I like that idea. I'm glad you resurfaced it. Um, I would go with the stock versus options. It's going to be tougher to time. Uh, question from Trolls on Twitter, T-R-O-E-L-S. Hi, Tom. I have a question regarding your post today about Baidu. This was unusual act, uh, options activity. It seems like you write that somebody bought uh, 20,400 uh, call contracts. When you look at bar chart, it says the full that was the full volume for the day. Hope you can clear this up for me. Keep up the good work. I love your uh, be in the know uh, section each day. I also listen to your podcast each week. You have taught me a lot about staying positive, filter the noise, and using your common sense. Best regard, trolls. Uh, so I said, hi, trolls, you're correct. The volume posted this morning, that volume posted this morning before lunch. Uh, glad you're enjoying the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. So yeah, it's likely 20,000 contracts was one institutional buyer. There's no specific way to tell exactly who's behind each trade. But when you see big volumes like that, it's, uh, it's not your grandma across the way. Uh, so thanks for that question, trolls. Next one is... Uh, Okay, Tom, I consider you to be one of my favorite financial gurus. Uh, okay, gurus is an uh, interesting label, but uh, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for all the uh, opinions and not advice. That's right. Everything is opinion, not advice. Go to headfundtips.com, click on terms. Uh, do you have an opinion on selling year-end losers to offset my winners? The problem I see is trying to take advantage of the year-end rally when everyone else is trying to sell losers like myself. 
Also, any opinion on RMD? I typically do it at the end of the year and mix some selling, uh, some winners and losers. Again, congratulations to your two, on your two guppies, uh, Don G, aka Sunset Seeker. So, uh, Don, yeah, tax loss selling. I mean, this you want to talk with your financial advisor and tax advisor, but generally, this is the time of year when the uh, retail tax loss selling peaks. In other words, you'll see most, and it can go into early December on some names, and we're seeing that. I mean, you know, we always try to buy things that are on sale um, and play for the reversion, and those stocks right now, uh, there's just, you know, they're just not doing anything until kind of the selling subsides. The institutional selling uh, probably wound down in October, the last of the retail, and then we should start to see some uh, some lift in December. Uh, which will be helpful. So yeah, if you've got a big tax billing bill coming on gains, you you definitely uh, can take some losses against. The, the, the catch-22 about that, though, is you sell these things down in November. If the thesis, if the underlying thesis hasn't changed um, and you're getting out of it just for the tax benefit, and then you do get that Santa rally, and then you got to wait a month to get back in, uh, and you miss that up, then then you may lose more than what you save on the taxes. So you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Has something changed in this thesis that I no longer like it anymore? And if so, yeah, dump it and take the tax benefit. If not, um, uh, you know, then, then you may want to hold it through because you don't want to, you know, miss out on it. So uh, it's a catch-22. Uh, Tim Good says, following you and reading your quotes from successful traders is a lot of fun learning how to look for opportunities to buy where others are not. Do you think there are opportunities for MasterCard and Visa? I've been looking into opportunities in Turkey and Brazil. The large country ETFs are one way to enter the market. Finviz has 36 stocks listed under Brazil and two for Turkey. Curious how you're entering these markets. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with podcast tweets and YouTube channel. Uh, that's Tim. So thanks, Tim. Um, Okay, so Visa and MasterCard, why are they down? Um, let's see, where is this? I think it's... Um, okay, well, I had that article pulled up and now it seems to have disappeared. Okay, so basically the reason that... Here it is. Uh, Visa and MasterCard are down two things. Number one, Ali, uh, not Alibaba, uh, Amazon canceled Visa in the UK. Um, that's number one. And there's a fear that they could cancel Visa in the US. Um, several analysts believe that it's just a negotiating tactic in the year end and they'll just shave the, the fees down a little bit before year end. Uh, other people are very worried about disruptors like these um, installment pay plays uh, like a firm and um, there are a couple others um, uh, after pay um, buy now pay later type of uh, thing so so there's a fear that this is going to completely disrupt the market and um, leave these players like Fiserv, Global Payments, uh, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal's also down, Square's down a bit, and leave them all in the dust, and the world is going to change overnight. And then you also have crypto. Um, 
I think that all of those are real threats over time. Uh, I don't think the world changes overnight. So I think after this initial flush out, um, you know, Visa and PayPal, as a matter of fact, you saw one of the directors of PayPal in the market uh, a few days ago. He bought 20, he bought $2 million, $2 million worth of stock. Um, let me just pull that right up, uh, which I thought was interesting because PayPal's gotten smacked just like Visa. Uh, yeah, here it is. Uh, John Donahoe bought, um, ten thousand, you know, just about 10,000 shares at $204. Uh, so he's obviously got confidence in it. I think he's right. I think it'll take a little, little time to settle out in terms of PayPal, probably in terms of Visa, just to get through this buy now, pay later. I think you're probably going to find that, uh, it's underutilized this holiday season. Um, they'll extrapolate growth rates on the basis of it. But by and large, you know, most people have their credit card in Amazon and they get points and they get cash back and they get all these other things. And I think most people pay their, their bill within 30 days. So I, I think this is just a short-term negotiating tactic. You may see a little more turn before a, a, a turnaround. But um, you could probably inch into the visas and, and the PayPal's uh, here. Uh, Matt Janik, um, for personal investing, wondering your thoughts of sinking long money into S&P 500 versus a leveraged S&P futures financial derivative ETF like SSO. What are the pros and cons of each in anticipated returns and tax implications, if any? Um <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, there's UPRO, UPRO, which is a also a leveraged uh, ETF. Uh, the complications of that, one is there's regulatory risk. Every few years, the uh, SEC is out saying we don't really like these leveraged ETFs. They're usually referring to the triple leveraged ones. So you got to keep an eye on the regulatory thing. And if, you, if you're doing a long-term set and forget, you don't really want to have to worry about that. So I think you're better off just using the regular ETF, like a VTI of total market uh, from Vanguard or an SPY if you want to do the S&P 500. Uh, use the leverage ones for more short-term stuff if you're doing that. Uh, just, just let your money compound and don't worry about leveraging. Because the other thing is, you know, if you're two times levered, you get a 30% correction, you're down 60%. Uh, and then there are, in some of those things, there are triggers particularly if they're derivative based where they can just shut the whole thing down it it, it creates a complication so uh my my best suggestion there would be what i would do rather is uh i'd, I'd be more in just uh, uh, unlevered and let the that compound for the long term uh Sharab says hi tom been a long time how are you in the shoot first ask questions later article you mentioned russell 2000 and rising rates i want to ask you why is the rising rate environment constructive for the russell 2000 it's amazing i learned something new every time in your weekly video cast keep up the fantastic work uh, a couple of reasons number one there's a weighting of regional banks in the small caps so they benefit from rising rate environment number two uh it, it's the short duration earnings story so uh you have more cyclical companies that benefit uh when the discount rate is increased uh, the long duration earnings found in tech become less valuable in the present and the shorter term earnings cycle stocks like energy, like uh, financials, like industrials, 
the cyclical stocks tend to outperform and they're a higher weighting in the Russell 2000. So that's why that does better. Great question from show. So uh, thank you for all those wonderful Ask Me Anything questions this week. Uh, moving right along. Um, Okay, we covered Visa. Who will be the next Fed chair? Why Brainerd is gaining on Powell? Basically here, the net is that uh, you're either going to get a known quantity dove in, hawkish dove, I guess, in in, uh, Chair Powell, but it's a known quantity, it would be a non-event, or you're going to get an unknown quantity Uber dove uh, and Lael Brainerd, uh, she is, uh, she thinks, in, you know, she, she's not worried about inflation. She wants to keep the pedal to the metal. She generally believes, I, I believe, in MMT. She wants to alleviate poverty through the Federal Reserve. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, the market might, in the short term, like an Uber Dove. On the other hand, it might start to worry about inflation with her at the helm. Uh, and... Uh, Senator Manchin, Joe Manchin, was out today saying he had a long conversation with Chair Powell about um, inflation, and he felt uh, very comfortable endorsing him after that long conversation. So that could, in fact, be the swing vote, and that would keep the status quo, and the market would probably like that. So um, it changes on a day-to-day basis, but that's where it is. As you know, Biden and Xi had the uh, virtual meeting on Monday, uh, kind of a non-event, but it started to thaw the relationship. Uh, Henry Kissinger said uh, the talks were a good beginning to avoid a clash, uh, must follow up with concrete discussions, and uh, so, so that was a step in the right direction. Both sides calling for more cooperation amid tensions. So it, it was just n- nothing substantive came out of it other than they're talking, the ice is somewhat thawed. And then I saw this headline today, which would be uh, not constructive, uh, you know, after that type of talk where Biden says, quote, we are considering a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics. Uh, that would probably set things back. So we don't want to see that, particularly with the uh, Boeing uh, airplane approval on track, the 737 recertification now on track for November 26th. If you recall, over the weekend, an article came out saying that um, the Chinese regulators were okay with it. They were now going to turn it over to industry for review, and they'd come to a decision on November 26th. We don't want anything to muddy that up, so hopefully either Biden will reserve his uh, boycott or not have a boycott uh, or just not say anything, keep, you know, keep his mouth quiet uh, between now and then, get the Boeing certification through and uh, and off to the races. Boeing's been a, been a nice winner uh, this week off of that. Uh, the general market, you've got a uh, couple firms out. Morgan Stanley was pretty negative. I think they said it would, the S&P would be down 5% next year, but J.P. Morgan and Goldman are kind of in line with what we've been talking about. Um, J.P. Morgan's talking about S&P hitting 5,000 early next year as global supply chain check pressures begin to ease. We agree with that. Um, that would be a 6% rise. Easing supply chain checker, uh, pressures will help companies deliver strong revenue growth, growth and record profit margins. Textual analysis of management discussions confirm that trends are stabilizing with the worst likely behind. We were ahead of the curve. We, we were talking about this a month ago when everyone else was in, in, a, in a frenzy about this. I think that's going to prove to be accurate. Uh, we'll see how it, uh, 
uh, plays out. The bank pointed to several macro indicators that point to a thaw in supply change and that several consumer goods and tech hardware companies expect to fully restore production this month. This could help lower prices as supply becomes more plentiful, also putting a cap on concerns of red hot inflation uh, and so on. So that's that from JP Morgan. Uh, now we've got, uh, we saw retail sales jump by the most since March, topping forecast that came in earlier in the week. Goldman Sachs also has a similar uh, price target. They expect um, they expect the S&P will reach 5,100 by the end of 2022. Uh, and in that context, uh, which would be a 9% rise from here, uh, 10% including dividends, and in that context, they're recommending pro-inflation plays like um, financial sector. They're also suggesting tech, and they're also suggesting healthcare. I think healthcare is going to be a good theme. Speaking back to the Ask Me Anything question about Novartis, I think healthcare is going to start to run after this spending bill is either fails or gets pushed through, uh, and uh, and defenses will come in ha- handy with the with the uh, volatility ticking up. So that's that. Uh, JP Morgan, we covered. Uh, here's a, with regard to Iran. Uh, didn't get the question from Ben this week, so I figured I'd, I'd just answer it before he asked it. Uh, Iran's stockpile of near weapons grade nuclear fuel has jumped significantly, according to a confidential report by the UN Atomic Agency. This is a negotiating posture uh, to get a deal done, which would put uh, four or 500,000 barrels a day on the market. Uh, after, okay, now moving on to China, which is going to be a lot of what we cover today. Uh, after $500 billion route, optimism grows for China. Tech Watch just came out on Friday, I guess it was. And um, let's see who is out. Goldman Sachs, the worst is likely behind us in terms of regulation intensity and the corresponding shocks to the market. Goldman Sachs group strategist Kinger Lau wrote, And the mandate for Xi Jinping to potentially rule for life may mean policy continuity and fewer regulatory surprises. I think that was a big catalyst last week. Um, And I think that's the key key takeaways we wanted to cover from that. Uh, Tiger Global is one of the major growth and momentum hedge funds. Uh, they're undeterred by the recent crackdown. They've put 60, uh, $65 billion to work in China, so they're undeterred by the long-term picture. China releases 36,000-word document expected to extend Xi's rule in perpetuity, basically. We covered that last week, but it got kind of cemented this week. Um, now, in that context, here's the first easing. China to ease a- asset-backed security curbs. We injects funds, Evergrande update. So they're, they're easing the ability of these firms to sell off assets, to raise money through ABS. Um, uh, Etc. So um, once that kind of edict went through where Xi no longer had to worry about cementing his third term and beyond, more or less, uh, a lot of these tight-fisted regulatory policies have started to ease a little bit um, uh, and we're seeing it in the property market and in tech to a lesser extent. Uh, Alibaba, $8 billion takeover, could avert one of China's biggest potential corporate failures. So they're taking over... Looking back at it. uh, uh, 
Tsinghua Unigroup, which is a uh, indebted chip maker. So they have a technology for chips. Uh, Alibaba also has its own chip in the cloud space. We're going to talk about their cloud growth, which is the growth story moving forward. They have a, a um, cloud business that's growing faster than Amazon's AWS business, and that's going to be the future. That's where all the profit margin is, and that, that it grew better than expected this quarter. Uh, so, so this would be uh, them taking over this firm would also uh, be seen as a, very, as a big positive for the government. The government wants huge investment in chips. That, that's part of their um, dual circulation where they, they want to have their uh, technology growth over the next few years and not to be dependent on outside uh, countries for chips. And Alibaba being a leader in this, the government would want to get behind them and, and help them foster that growth and development. Um, Okay, so here's the earnings call from today. Alibaba outlook disappoints after China's slowdowns hurt sales. So we're going to drill down to this because the headline is not really what's under the surface here. Um, basically, they grew revenues 29% year on year in the face of um, a huge regulatory crackdown. I mean, that was the worst quarter, August uh, September, October, I'm sorry, July, August, September. That was that absolute worst period. I mean, that's when you were getting out a headline every single day. You also had the zero COVID policies where they were shutting down whole cities at a time, anytime there was a case of COVID that came up, which crushed consumer confidence, crushed GDP and GDP expectations. So in the face of all that, they still grew revenues 29% year on year, which is very uh, positive. And if you actually look at that in the context of, um, let me just see here. I want to pull something up. Just put it in the context of these other companies. Uh, I put it out today. Okay. So Charlie Bellello put out uh, Q3 revenue growth year-on-year -year change. He put uh, Tesla up 57%, AMD 54%, NVIDIA 50%, Shopify 46%, Facebook 35%, Apple 29%, Salesforce 23%, Adobe 22%, Microsoft 22%, Netflix 16%, Amazon 15%, S&P 500 14%. Well, guess what? Alibaba did 29% revenue growth for the same quarter. Uh, and their guidance for the uh, full fiscal year is 20 to 23%. The market didn't like the guidance, but when we drill down, you have to take a look at this. This is key. So this is the September quarter, okay? And the, this table, bar chart, is the revenue growth since 2017 from 55 billion RMB to 85, to 119, to 155 last year, to 200 billion RMB this quarter, okay? Now, we are paying the same price to buy this stock today with 200 billion RMB as people were paying in 2017 when it had 55 billion RMB per quarter in sales. So to believe that the stock is adequately priced at these levels, you have to believe that this chart is going to go like a roller coaster. This would be the peak, and then it's going to just collapse down back to 2017 levels, uh, which is just unrealistic because you're, you're not only seeing their uh, 
um, you're not only seeing the, the revenues grow, you're seeing the users grow both domestically and internationally and the secret jewel, which is going to be all the margin and all the cash flow that they're investing hugely in, which is what hurt uh, the bottom line this quarter, which was a good line to hurt the bottom quarter with all the regulatory overhang. It wouldn't have been a quarter to have record earnings, especially when they're talking about uh, common prosperity. Um, and they did make a big investment in um, uh, investing in common prosperity projects and startups and that type of thing. I think it was $15 billion during the quarter when the government was, was pushing hard. So all these things hurt. Um, but we're going to talk about the biggest thing that hurt the bottom line was their equity investments. It wasn't their underlying business. So we'll get to that in just a second. Um, okay. Also want to look at this 60-minute chart on BABA. And what it seems like is that, you know, and again, I'm I'm not a huge, like, big pusher and adherent to technical analysis. My, my general view is you have to have the fun, fundamental story and analysis done first, and then the technicals can just get, give you a sense of timing in some cases, and more than that, tell you when the voting machine, the short-term irrationality based on emotion, is going to be outweighed by the weighing machine, uh, which ultimately mean reverts back to fundamentals and back to its long-term trend. And what we saw here was kind of perfect. We'll see how this plays out tomorrow. Obviously, everyone's watching. No one wants to see it blow below this, this 138.43 low that we put in six weeks ago. Uh, but it looks like a retest. But more than that, it looks like it's filling this gap. So it had this huge gap shoot up uh, on October 7th, uh, jumped from like 144 to 151, and then it kept going up to 182. And now it looks like it's filling that gap. And now that gap's filled. Uh, we'll see if it, uh, if, it, if it can recover after people have a, have a little time to digest this. Because even if their sales growth went to 5%, never mind 20 to 23%, the stock is still dramatically undervalued and it would be perceived as a short-term thing because their international is growing and their cloud is growing and their margins are going to grow. And I think if you were going to kitchen sink a quarter, uh, this, was the, this was the quarter that you don't want to show record profits. That's for damn sure, even though they showed record revenues. Uh, and even in the face of a huge crackdown where they scaled back their promotions for Singles Day, they also beat record Singles Day by 8.5% year on year on top of that in the fourth quarter. So... Um, you know, it's it's not the end of the world. So this is kind of what the stock did during the day. Uh, bottomed after margin calls and then started to rise into the close. We'll see how that, that behaves. But um, so and Alibaba's annual active consumers expanded to about $1.24 billion for the 12 months ended September 30th, adding roughly $62 million from the 12 months ended June 30th. So they've added 62 million users over the last three-month quarter. Uh, we're on track to achieve our longer-term target of serving 2 billion customers globally. By the way, I think about 40 million of this was domestic, and they added 20 million um, uh, international, and that 20 million is on a base of like 260 million, so it's you know meaningful, 10% in a quarter. Uh, Alibaba continues to invest in domestic consumption, globalization, cloud computing as flagged in May to build a solid foundation for sustainable growth. 
they got hit on EBITDA, which we're going to cover why. Uh, but again, just look, you're paying the same price for the stock when it was here right now when it's doing four times as much in business. So, you know, these things are extreme. Maybe they take a little while to work out, but I think at some point, like, the bad news is out and the sellers are gone. Uh, who's left to sell this stock? Maybe you have a little bit more tax loss selling into year end, but uh, I think most of the institutional selling is done. And you did see some hedge funds start to pick it up last quarter. So um, we'll see on that. Um, okay, so let's go to the full release. I want to cover some of the key highlights here. Um, all right. So we covered the revenue, we covered the annual active. Okay, so of the 1.24 billion, 953 million are in China and 285 million are overseas, representing a quarterly net increase of 41 million and 20 million respect respectively. So they gained 20 million on the uh, of the uh, of the 285 and 41 of the 953, that's in three months. That's just amazing. Uh, this is still a growth company. And then, uh, so where they missed was on the bottom line, and they also missed on uh, the guidance. They took down from, I believe, 27% uh, sales growth for the fiscal year ending in March 2022 uh, to 20 to 23%. And uh, they said that that was attributable to um, the slower economy due to all the shutdowns and the COVID. And also, um, obviously, the regulatory crackdown shifted consumer confidence. And also some increased competition from JD and Pinduoduo. But they're investing in that to counter it. And they were kind of the big target. So they had to kind of stay under the radar with Singles Day. And I think now that Xi has cemented his kind of lifelong power, uh, I think uh, they're going to want to see all these businesses thrive because consumption is a major part of their dual circulation initiative going into 2025. Um, okay, there were two other key things. Uh, in September quarter, our cloud computing revenue grew by 33% year over year uh, to 3.1 billion U.S., primarily driven by strong growth in revenue from customers in the internet, financial services, and retail industries. And uh, they launched their Giton 710 server chip. We announced a new in-house processor designed to use at our data centers. The server chip's name, Giton 710, deliver exceptional computing performance and energy efficiency together with our global partners, including Intel, NVIDIA, AMD, ARM. We'll be able to continue to innovate our computing infrastructure and diverse computing services to our global consumers. Uh, that's a big deal. The Chinese government wants to see development in chips. That's very important, and they'll be very, very supportive of any company that does that. Uh, and then the other aspect that I wanted to cover was uh, share repurchases. Um, during the quarter, they repurchased about uh, 26.9 million of their ADS shares. Uh, or $5.1 billion worth of stock. They, they uh, bought $5 billion worth of stock. So someone asked a few weeks ago, why do companies buy at the top when they buy at the bottom? Well, BABA is doing the right thing and they're buying aggressively at the bottom. 
uh, 5 billion shares, and I'm sure they're back in the market uh, today and this quarter. They, I think they have got a $15 billion authorization. They probably have a third of that left, and they'll probably increase that authorization, I would imagine, before year end. So expect more buybacks. So that's a positive thing to shrink the float. Uh, and those were kind of the key areas that I wanted to cover. And then this was the uh, earnings call, which I tuned in for. Just to give you a visual here, total revenue was up 29% year on year. The China commerce was up 30. International commerce, which I said is a growth factor, 34% year on year. And the cloud computing, where all the margins are going to be, was up 33% year on year. Uh, that's going to grow to become a larger and larger part of the business. As we saw, it fueled all of Amazon's growth and profitability for many, many years. Um, so that that is a big deal. Um, you can see the breakdown here. By the way, you can get this. Just Google uh, Alibaba Investor Relations and you can pull up the earnings presentation. You can see the breakdown by segment and you just see the continued growth uh, of the company and the top line in particular, bottom line, they had to take those regulatory hits. Uh, and oh, the other aspect that I wanted to cover that was critically important um, is the valuation. Hold on for a second. China retail business. Okay. Adjusted EBITDA decreased 27%. Where is that? No. Um, all right, let me pull it up here. Okay, here it is. Uh, the year-over-year -year decreases in net income were primarily due to net losses arising from changes in the market prices of our equity investments in publicly traded companies in the quarter ended September 30th, 2021, compared to net gains in the same quarter of 2020, as well as our increased investments in key strategic areas to and support to merchants, as mentioned above, partly offset by the decrease in share-based compensation expenses related to Ant Group share-based awards granted to our employees. So the year-over-year -year decreases primarily due to net losses arising from changes in market prices of equity investments in the publicly traded companies. Well, they hold a bunch of Chinese companies. They got smashed in Q3. They took those short-term mark-to-markets. But if and when this market recovers, which we believe those are going to be reversed back moving forward, and, uh, and that's something people aren't looking for. So they just look at, simply look at the headline, Alibaba misses expectations as earnings plunge 38% in the September quarter when they should be looking for why did earnings plunge 38% in the September quarter. And you can see a lot of it was attributable to the mark-to-market on their investments in public securities, namely Chinese stocks, which experienced one of the worst regulatory crackdowns uh, since four years ago, by the way. These happen every three to four years. The, the government cracks down and the general market corrects 35 to 40%. And we had the exact same thing in Q3, uh, starting to recover a bit in, in Q4. Uh, and we're hopeful we'll, we'll see more follow through. So, uh, so that was the key point that I wanted to lay out. That was in the uh, press release and uh, also reemphasized. 
Uh, just to switch gears now to Boeing, uh, they got an order worth $9 billion from Alaska Air. They also got 20 freighter orders, new plans, new conversion lines in UK and Canada. Um, where was this? Okay, so Dubai Air Show, they uh, they got a, anyway they got a couple orders. Um, Boeing stock gets upgraded again. Analysts see a turnaround coming. Wall Street's getting more bullish again. Opinion follows trend. Stock catching a second upgrade in as many days. The worst is behind it. J.P. Morgan analyst Seth Seifman on Thursday upgraded Boeing shares from buy for, to buy from hold. His price target goes to two seventy five from two sixty. Boeing shares were up uh, pre-market, and what else? Uh, I think they also finished. Yeah, they also finished up on the day. And let's see. Two positive factors are restarting deliveries on the Twin Isle 737 jet now on hold, while Boeing fixes quality issues discovered in recent months and the overall recovery in global air travel. Uh, 737 MAX was grounded between March 2019 and November 2020 following two deadly crashes. Most countries have reapproved the plane for commercial freight. China has seen relative, been relatively slow to lift its MAX prohibition. Seifman believes Chinese reapproval is imminent based on recent media reports. Based on what the CEO said on the last, uh, um, his appearance following the, er- uh, his media appearance following the earnings call, uh, this quarter, he believes it's a Q4 event and based on the um, government Basically, giving it the green light, subject to industry approval decision due on November 26. Uh, you know, I think you get some movement ahead of that, which we've started to see, and then I think you get a, a big move once that recertification goes through, and we're off to the races. So that was positive to see. Oh, this was the article: China satisfied with Boeing 737 Max changes seeks industry feedback by November 26. Uh, U.S. and Europe had also sought feedback before approving return. Model has been banned in China since March of 2019. So, um, so that will be a two-year ban lifted, hopefully by the end of this month, provided we don't get into any uh, uh, diplomatic spats before then. Uh, Boeing encouraged by signs China may soon clear MAX to fly. That's uh, a couple of days ago. Commercial planes head says he's hopeful about a deal. Uh, said Stan Deal. Uh, we've seen some orders on freighters that have come through and we're just encouraged. We know that President Biden and Xi Jinping are talking, so those are all encouraging signs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Diplomatic thought. Okay. Um, and then these are the contexts. Also, Wells Fargo upgraded. Wells Fargo analyst, analyst Matthew Akers upgraded Boeing to overweight from equal weight with a price target of 272 up from 224. I think that's a great primary target. Uh, both of them seem to be around 270. I think it goes higher uh, in due time. The analyst now sees a positive risk-reward balance with the stock lagging the S&P, uh, uh, what, S&P 500 index by 30% since its March high. Boeing should benefit from the China 737 MAX recertification, resumption of the 787 deliveries, higher fuel costs driving more aircraft retirements, and easing international travel restrictions, Akers tells investors in a research note. Each of these is a matter of when rather than if. Says the analyst, he sees limited share downside, saying Boeing has de-risked 2022 delivery expectations and is less susceptible to supply chain disruption given its large inventory of completed aircraft. Um, and then this was the uh, J.P. Morgan uh, upgrade. Uh, 
to overweight from neutral, price target 275 up from 260. The shares have a fairly defined catalyst path and the first China's max certification is now in view. Stephen tells investors in a research note, Boeing's position at the center of the global air, air travel offers confidence that it will recover financially over time and we believe risk reward now skews favorably. Uh, the upgrade may be early and that he's prepared for a slog. Okay, that would be in the case of no recertification, I guess, but um, more likely it's upside than not. Um, okay, we, we put out the summary to the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey this month. The most important finding in my view was this table here, which showed uh, this was 388 managers with 1.2 trillion under management. Uh, which of the following assets will produce the best returns in 2022? They put emerging market equities as the number one thing. We agree the biggest weight in that is China. And one of the biggest weights in the EEM index, weight number three, is Alibaba. So that's a big one. Uh, there's obviously a lot of bullishness. And that's why I think uh, we're going to get hit in Q1 at some point, uh, potentially like a uh, uh, 2018 scenario. Uh, we'll, we'll take a look at that in the article. Most crowded trade is still long U.S. tech stocks, long Bitcoin, long ESG. And the biggest tail risk is inflation, followed by rate hikes, followed by China, followed by asset bubbles. Um, and that is that. Now, the article of the week, the Luke Bryan played against stock market and sentiment results. In recent weeks, articles and podcast videocasts, we made the case that volatility will pick up in 2022 as liquidity slowly starts to come out of the market. When we laid out the case for 2021 in January, we're expecting high teens returns for the S&P 500 coupled with low volatility, handful of pullbacks contained to three to 5%. That has borne out and then some. Now we're anticipating an increase in volatility for 2022 with high single digit to low double digit returns for the S&P 500. We chose Luke Bryan's country hit play it again to depict our expectations that 2022 may look a bit like 2014 or 2018, considering that 2013 and 2017 were years that started with high return, that shared the high return and low volatility characteristics that we saw in 2021, also coming out of crashes of their own in 2011 and 2016, respectively, like we saw in 2020. 2022 will not repeat those years per se, but it may rhyme. So I put this chart together. It shows you know, the crash in 11. This was the European debt crisis. Uh, then you just had this nonstop run uh, with a little choppiness in the beginning and then straight up. Uh, and then 14, you got, you know, some early volatility in the first quarter. Uh, then you rose and then you got some October volatility. Uh, and I think you finished up 12 or 13 percent in 2014. And then 2018, uh, you had this 2016 crash. And then you had, you know, some chop volatility in the early stages, then straight up. And then you had this blow off top into January, which I could potentially see a scenario like that. Uh, where you just get all this momentum in December. I, probably once we get through this kind of debt ceiling, spending bill, uh, Fed pick type of thing, which could happen in the next few weeks, and just money chases hard, and then you get a good 10% quick uh, correction. I could see that type of scenario playing out. But the key is, after this big thing, you're going to get more sideways, uh, high single digits, low double digits, then straight up. 
uh, more sideways than straight up. We've had this, we had that early chop, just like you saw here and here, and then straight up. Maybe we get a blow off before a 10% correction, but more likely this sideways chop into you know, 5,000, 5,100, like the analysts are expecting, I think is a good way to look at it. Um, our 2022 expectation for higher volatility and high single digit returns for the S&P 500 is reasonable expecting reasonable expectation considering about 10% earnings growth coupled with back half liquidity contraction post taper. So if they follow through with taper, which is not a foregone conclusion, if Blaine Brainerd gets in, it may be delayed or it may be mitigated or it may be smaller than expected. But assuming that Powell is renominated and they do it in seven months, uh, they'll add $660 billion of liquidity between now and June. And then after that, liquidity will start to come out of the system uh, and that's, uh, that's going to slow things down a little bit and maybe lead to a little bit multiple contraction even as earnings are rising. Uh, when I was looking back at my January 7th, 2021 article, these charts came up chronicling the ascent, the ascent of Wells Fargo from our article on September 24th when we were buying aggressively in the low to mid-20s. As we come up on Alibaba earnings today, the resemblance is uncanny. So I put this out at 5 or 6 in the morning before earnings, but the story is still intact because... If you look at, let's just pull up a weekly chart. All right, let's just do weekly and uh, 10 years. Okay, so you can see what that looks like. It looks like it's trying to retest that low and then... Um, off to the races, but where is the article? Okay, here. So, um, okay. So looking at Alibaba on a weekly basis, we can see an aggressive capitulation below the volume by price level of maximum ownership. You can see that here on the left. That's where the most people own it, the price, price ranges. So that in theory, it, that's the institutional money that'll stand up to defend the stock at those levels. This creates the panic needed to finally bottom out. Um, we are not out of the woods as we still have to retake that blue line here above 180, but we're headed in the right direction. So that's where we were. Now we've retested. Uh, you still have a lot of ownership here. Hopefully they'll defend this low. Uh, and then we should be back, back up uh, to, to get over this and continue beyond. Uh, the other similarity of note is the salience of the ADX, which I rarely ever use. You'll see in these three washout periods where the green ADX line got below 10 and then bounced, the next pullback in green ADX was the bottom before an aggressive move up. So you had this bottom below 10 on the green ADX line. Um, then you had a rally and this first pullback, that, that was kind of the last hurrah before the stock just took off upward. Uh, you had the same thing in, two, so that was 2015. Uh, you had the same thing in 2018, which we've talked a lot. You bounce off the 10, you pull back, and then that's the last hurrah, and then straight shot up. And then the same thing here. The 10 spot, bounce up, you pull back. We pull back a little more today, and then straight up. So we're hopeful in the next week, this will be uh, the end of it all behind us. We did use the opportunity this morning to tag on a little bit more. But, um, you know, we're getting to the point that th th this thing's ready to go. I mean, it's, it's kind of like Boeing. You know, all the bad news is out. Uh, what else you got for me? I mean, at, at that point, it's like, you know, we're, we're buying a business that's grown, you know, 
and we're buying it for the same price as before the growth, that's attractive to me. Unless you can make the case that this is the peak of everything and it's going to just roll over 75% in sales and earnings over the next four years, then this pricing makes absolutely zero sense. And this is the irrationality of the short-term voting machine and you just have to deal with it. It's structural dislocation, it's fund blow-ups, it's all those different things, um, and, um, but eventually it passes. Uh, so the other similarity, uh, watch out period. Okay. We did that. Also, if you look at the shorter term chart for Baba, like we had above for WFC, the bottoming process, leg sweep followed by recovery seems to be following the same pattern. Well, <laughs> we got the leg sweep. We got the start of the recovery. Now we're retesting. So, um, so hopefully that will be it. We'll, we'll take it as it comes, but nothing's really changed fundamentally. Yes. They took sales guidance down for the fiscal year ending in March from, uh, 27 to 20 to 23, uh, but that's still growing in like the most averse once in a hundred year environment with city shutdowns, with regulatory crackdowns, with, with all this COVID stuff, uh, that most of which is in the rear view mirror now. And the bad news is fully out just like we saw with Boeing. And I think now it's time to, uh, to find some buyers and, and, uh, and take off and start to, to move back toward trend. Um, Okay, so while the patterns are of no use without the general thesis, which is fundamentally based, they do come in handy when the irrationality of the short-term voting machine is in control. Sooner or later, the long-term weighing machine takes over and the fundamentals prevail. I'm referring to uh, The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham, uh, Warren Buffett's mentor, uh, when he talks about the uh, irrationality, the manic market uh, how in the short term it makes no sense. It's based on emotions and voting. In the long term, it's based on fundamentals and reversion to the mean, um, uh, which is the weighing machine. So um, then the above so uh, takes over and the fundamentals prevail. But in the interim, the above analysis, both the ADX and this other stuff, uh, can come in handy to get a sense of how long it might take for the weighing machine to take over because it feels like it's taken a bit longer. Felt the same way last year with some of the energy stocks and and. Uh, uh, banks before they took off. But, um, but I think a lot of the bad news is out, certainly for Boeing, certainly for BABA, uh, and, and moving forward. So couple that with two data points. Um, emerging markets are trading at the greatest bargain relative to the S&P 500 in the past 20 years. We know what happened next from 2002 to 2007 was the biggest bull market in the history of emerging markets. China is the largest weighting in the emerging market indices. So you could pull up on State Street, uh, just the ETF, EEM. Is it State Street? iShares, BlackRock, okay? Uh, and it shows you the holdings. Uh, and you can see it's all, you know, Taiwan Semiconductor, Tencent. Alibaba is number three with a almost 4% weighting. Uh, you know, JD's in there. So the vast majority of that recovery is going to be fueled by China. And uh, these type of divergences, you, you know, you have to take advantage of. That's not to say it doesn't go down to 0.2. And uh, by the way, I don't think I answered Tim's uh, question on Brazil and because uh, he had a two-part question. Brazil and um, Turkey. So Turkey is, is obviously the wild, wild west. I mean, Erdogan wants to get reelected. He may or may not. But I think you want to have some exposure ahead of the election because number one he has every incentive they just did another rate cut i don't know if these are going to backfire on him or not 
But um, since we mentioned it, I think Turkey is up like a you know five percent or something over that period. Uh, so the ETF is TUR. Uh, and then as far as Brazil, there are twenty six stocks. You got to do your homework. Uh, I think you know you could just get an emerging market that's going to give you access to China. It's going to give you access to Brazil. Uh, and the emerging markets, you could get Turkey. EWZ is a Brazil ETF. And these, you really have to think long-term. It's not like Alibaba where we're looking for a turn in the next, you know, soon. Uh, These are kind of like, you know, this is really cheap. And I look five years out, I think they're going to relatively outperform on a dramatic basis relative to the S&P 500. And I want my exposure now. And you start to, to to build a position, you know, maybe a third now, a third in a few months, a third in in six months. Um, but in this week's Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, as I said, the uh, not only are they, they the cheapest relative to the S and P in twenty years, but now you know managers with trillions of dollars are seeing that uh, they have a chance to produce the best returns in twenty twenty two. And the biggest part of that is China. So while all the big sell side firms debate whether the S&P is going to be up 9% or down 5% next year, avoid the noise, look under the surface, find the bargains wherever they may be domiciled. The end of year selling pressure in laggard names is in the rearview mirror for institutional managers. As you see in this chart from Bank of America, their selling pressure ended in October and they should start uh, being net buyers. And retail uh, ends basically the end of November, uh, but they're less money. So you can see in this month's fund manager survey that while institutions are still dramatically underweight emerging markets, second only to bonds, see chart 12. You can see right down here. Uh, they did start to add emerging markets val- uh, allocation last month, chart 13. You saw them here. Net positive looks like about two percentage points increase last uh, month. Uh, and so they got done selling their laggards in early October, the dark blue line. And, uh, and now they've been buying. So that's, that's a positive thing to see. As far as the short term, um, the uh, uh, retail exuberance started to wane. It went from 48% bullish to 38.8. Fear and greed was down to 79. That's still near an extreme. It's not the time to be adding a lot of high beta here. But if you own reasonably valued businesses, uh, you can probably ride them into year end. Uh, barring you know some crazy thing happening with the debt ceiling or the uh, Fed or the spending, but uh, those are all low probability and will probably just amount to a few days of chop. And um, so the other aspect that supports the uh, mid, uh, the the high single digits to low double digits, uh, if you look at the quantitative data from LPL Ryan Dietrich, uh, years that have greater than twenty percent. Years, the next year averages um, 11.5% is the average, 12.8% is the median. I would not anticipate any major breakdowns through year-end 2021, barring a major surprise around the Fed or debt ceiling, lower probability events, which will likely be contained to a few days of chop. As for the Fed, you're either getting a known dove or an unknown super dove. The increased volatility next year will create more opportunity to capture under the surface sector rotation dislocation opportunities, which is our knitting. In the meantime, we may very well be in for a, quote, play it again year in 2022. Play it again, referring to uh, 2018 or 2014 type of environment after a big move. Uh, some unusual activity that came in today at, with January 145 calls, 5,100 5, contracts. 
Uber, uh, Derek Hushar Shah, he bought $9 million, $9 or $10 million worth of stock this week. I thought that was a pretty good vote of confidence in the reopening. Uh, we covered the BABA. Baidu, this was the 20,000 contracts yesterday. Uh, this is December 195 calls. That is an aggressive hockey stick bet. I uh, hope they're right, but um, we'll see how that plays out. And then you see here for... 2022 calendar year, uh, projecting 8.5% earnings growth. I think that'll probably move up to 9 or 10% when all is said and done. And that's why we're looking